0: Well, we resume this morning with the Word of God, and hopefully it's been instrumental as being the very heart of what we have been doing in our worship anyway, right? Right Doing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and readings and prayers all based on His Word. And now we come to a very rich portion of Scripture this morning, and uh, it is very important. I can say that because we probably said that every week, couldn't we? Because it's God's Word. It's not because I have anything important to say in my own self, but this right here does. This is something to remind us. A lot of these things that we're dealing with, it seems like I've been uh, repeating myself week after week as we're in the heart of this Gospel in Galatians. And uh, I don't want to be repetitious, but I I, I will tell you, it's repetitious for a reason. (laughs) And it's there to stick in our heads. So if I get a little bit old on this, try to get a little bit of a different corner uh, on it and just kind of uh, let this round out in our thinking. And it's always good to be reminded. Um, But we're going to narrow it down to this. What we once were. Secondly what we are now, what we have become, and thirdly, how we're to correct the wrongs and live the life God gave us. So, on the outlines, you have more points than that. But what I'm trying to do is when a preacher puts things together, he has to have it tight in his mind that he can put the whole sermon in one sentence and you will say, amen, we can get that <laughs> one. No. Uh, I don't believe that you guys would want to go to this. But I need to be able to sum it up in my own mind. And I heard it was somebody like, I don't know, Alistair Begg or somebody like that, of saying that if his, he was saying something about his wife was to wake him up in the middle of the night that he could immediately say in one sentence what his message is going to be on the next day. That's Sunday. <laughs> so I'm trying to think, how can I sum this up? Well, that would be it. In a nutshell, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We were slaves. We've become sons of God. Does that sound familiar? That's kind of where we left off last week. And now because of that, we should live accordingly. How about that? Now, there's the three points to stick in your mind. Now, to get into deeper things, we are going to uh, turn to chapter 4 of Galatians, verses 1 through 11. And without further ado, that is my introduction. It is now done.
1: Wow!
0: <laughs> are miracles going to continue?
1: <laughs>
0: we will see.
1: <laughs>
0: um, yeah. Let's, um, let's all stand. Honor of God's Word, Galatians 4, starting verse 1. We're in a new chapter, but it continues the same thing. Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God... How is it that you have turned back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Father, thank you for your precious holy word. Speak to us this morning. Make it fresh to us. Make it alive to us that we can realize what we were and what we have become because of you as the Holy Spirit works in us, and that we had never been enslaved to any kind of bondage again. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sons and Heirs of God, or my title was going to be From Slaves to Sons of God. So we went with Sons and Heirs of God, because we talked about slaves, but again this morning we're going to talk about slaves. And then sons of God. This time the slave is going to be different than the slaves that we normally think of. A lot of times we refer to ourselves as slaves and do that boastfully in the Lord because He has made us slaves of Him. But this time this is a different kind of slave. Now, um, the word child is going to pop up here. And uh, the word is nephios. And that means immature, not ready, like an infant. Um, uh, one who cannot speak uh, cannot even understand thoroughly what what things can mean so what we're going to do here is first of all look at the preparation for the sons how God prepares his sons even before they're Christians he's working on it and I think you can all attest to that how he worked on even though you weren't a Christian yet hadn't trusted in his sacrifice he was dealing with you and I, I've talked to just about everyone in here about how you know, the Lord was working through you even before. But then there was a moment in time where you trusted in Christ. You know, that's the important. And that's, that's where you're converted. Now Paul, what he's going to use here is an analogy. He uses an illustration for his point. The illustration I don't have to make up. I don't have to take from a book or anything. The illustration is right here in uh, our first three verses. And it, this is an illustration that everybody would be familiar with, whether it be a Jew or Gentile, Greek, Roman. Uh, whenever Paul uh, writes this for his readers, they would know what that meant, even more than what we would mean today. So, it, But it's illustrated for us very good here. He compares the rights of an infant son with a mature son. That's, that's what he's going to do. He's going to take the infant son. you get that? And then he's going to compare the difference to that son who is grown up and mature. And so he's still dealing with that kind of before and after thing. Uh, If you look back in chapter 3, verse 26, for you all all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, right? And then in verse 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, he's been dealing with the idea of sonship. You have sons and heirs used there, right? And, uh, you know, that, that heirs and being a son, I think, would get one excited. One day the son will be an heir of the father's estate. Even though he's promised that as a young infant, he doesn't have it. Even though he owns it, he really, in another sense, doesn't. There's going to come that time when he's, he's been appointed to that, but he's not of age yet. So that, that's the idea. That's pretty simple, right? Um, he, he is way too young. An infant is way too young to inherit or to be the heir of a vast richness of a state and take control of it, right? He can't do it. It's impossible. He could not do that. So It's, uh, it's a time thing here. So anyway, we get the idea of the child. As I say, as long as the heir is a child, and that's the idea, an infant here in the Greek. So you break that down. He can't talk. uh, He can't mentally understand uh, developed things. And he says this. He does not differ at all from a slave, although he's an owner of everything. He doesn't differ from the slave. Now, he's the one that's going to inherit all this, but he's at this time, whenever he's this infant and this baby... And even a a, a, even an older child, he still is equal to the slave, and the slave is not going to inherit that. And and so that's the idea that he uses on the level of that he legally owns it, but he doesn't have the privileges right now to to have that. Uh, He'll have someday. And uh, there's a word for that. Um, He's what we would call heir de jure. You like that? Heir de jure. Can everybody say that? No, don't, don't. (laughs) But this is, in fact, what he really is. heir de facto. And I'm not sure, but that's probably a lot of legal terms. And it's possible, and I know it's coming from Latin, but I I think maybe even Audrey might recognize that one, right? Would you recognize? Okay. So we're speaking on your language there, right? Okay. Can you come up here and help us? Okay, the child is heir by right ok by right he, he, he's the heir but as far as fact is concerned it's later so get the idea there position of that but, but he's no better off than a slave that's in the market that's that's the idea at least right now uh, he does not differ at all from a slave although he's owner of everything so as we explain verse by verse does that make sense move on right ok next one verse 2 But he is under guardians and managers. Okay, let's go to that. He owns everything, but yet he's not having the privileges really to use it right now. And so now he has guardians and managers to help him out until he gets of age. Well, the idea is here, the richer the father gets, the more servants he gets, the more servants and slaves that he gets, He has a vast estate, and so the more slaves and servants and land, property, home, homes, estates, if he gets that far, the more preoccupied he would be. Just to have slaves and running, that that in itself would be something and all this, maybe uh, this estate, this land. So he'd be preoccupied doing that. He doesn't have the time to spend with the child, right? He'd have to have guardians, have to have managers. I guess today when you have both working, somebody has to take care of the kids, don't they? So they're kind of like guardians and managers. We could kind of see how that works, right? Somebody's going to have to take care of them. Now the responsibility is going to be delegated to the servants in the household to raise the children. And so Paul is using this analogy. They all would know that. A Roman, a Greek, a Jew would even know it. A guardian is a general term for a slave. He has a responsibility to raise the child. He has custody. There's a word that we're used to today, right? He has custody of that particular child of the master. Boy, that's a responsibility, isn't it? So actually, the slave is kind of over that son that's going to have all this estate one day. Now, the managers, that's the next word, is related to it, but it refers to a servant in the household who would have the responsibility of being the steward. He is in steward. He's a steward of the Master. And actually, spiritually, we're stewards of the Lord, right? Whatever He's given us, we're to take care of and to help build up the, the estate. And, and so we've been given that responsibility. Well, this manager here would be a steward and he would manage the material needs of the child. Uh, the property, even. Be managing that until he would come of age. And so that's the next one. It's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. I like that. Now, we're still in the analogy. We're still in the illustration. I'm sure you've already figured out why I like that. The date set by the father. For one thing, it shows that the father in the household should be taking charge, right? And he's the one who appoints particular time periods that are important like this. But actually... It's a great illustration and it's what it's pointing to is our sovereign God who's absolutely in control and He is in control of time. Right? So He has that. It's the sovereign will. He has His purpose all mapped out. Everything is going to come in His time. There was a song by the Maranatha singers way back. It must have been in the 80s. In His time. Okay, Dennis, that's enough. That's back in the 80s. Before your time. Back in the 80s. But the father has an agenda in in this household here. So does the sovereign God. In his childhood, the law had been administered through the father. The father was responsible to the son. Ultimately has to make sure that he's raised right. Well, if you're a Jew, you have a bar mitzvah. Everybody's heard of the bar mitzvahs. Whenever the Jewish boy turns thirteen, that Sabbath right after that is whenever that special day comes. That's whenever he turns from a boy to a man. Bar mitzvah. A son of the law is what that means. Bar son mitzvah. In fact, the father would utter this benediction. You want to know what the benediction would be at a bar mitzvah? If you were at a bar mitzvah, he'd be saying this: "Blessed be Thou, O God, who has taken from me the responsibility of this boy." That means he's turning him over to the Lord. Ultimately, I mean, we know that he's always been God's. Uh, he's possessed by God, uh, but God gives us these children for a time. And we're to raise them. We can put that into our own aspect, right? What a privilege and blessing it is. And it's hard work, you know, to raise those children in the way that God wants us to. We are stewards in that. But we don't raise them up forever because eventually they leave. But in the time that we live in, they leave and then they come back. And then they leave and come back. (laughs) Or maybe they they come back and just stay and that's it. (laughs) Just, Just kidding. Our time periods are... Kind of funny. i got to cover it all because you guys are saying, oh, no, they don't leave. (laughs) Um, The boy prayed this prayer. Oh, my God and God of my fathers, on this solemn and sacred day, which marks my passage from boyhood to manhood, I humbly raise my eyes unto thee, and declare with sincerity and truth that henceforth I will keep thy commandments and undertake to bear the responsibility of my actions towards thee. Wow! What an oath! What a promise! Did they really do that? (laughs) (laughs) Supposed to. In other words, he became mature. That's the idea. He is now truly answerable. You know... All the children have to do, and and I like this, this is what Carolyn always used to do, and and she'd say, you know what? You are to obey Me because God says for you to obey your father and your mother. And when they're children, even though they may not even know God, they might know His Creator and everything, they may not have a relationship, or they could, but if they don't, still yet... They are accountable to God through the parent. And so, if, if they would just follow that one commandment, you honor father and mother, if the father and mother are teaching the things of God, they're going to do that. Hopefully. And uh, then again, we know that ultimately nobody can follow the law in every sense. We, we've already proven that. We know that. But if this is a general sense here. And so, this son would become mature. A clear dividing line. The Greeks, the Romans, did basically the same thing for their boys who turned to men. I think the Greeks it was like I don't know eighteen or something like that. We I think we described last week to talk about the Romans with with the toga, you know. And of course that was an analogy, uh, really a, a description of what it was like for that uh, young man uh, that is now turned uh, from a boy. And so the Greeks would do that too. So I won't describe that. This time we use the Jewish thing so that I'm not copying the same thing I did last week. You notice a lot of the same stuff that we've talked about? But it's good to be reminded. Now, what does it say? Well, equations 4, right? We're at verse 3 now already. So also we... Now, it takes that illustration of a fact that they would have known a bar mitzvah or whatever... and and the little child and then finally become mature. So also we, he turns this into a personal thing to us. We, while we were children, and he's talking about spiritually, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now we know about the depravity of man, right? That is an understanding that uh, we should have because we hear it a lot. We read it a lot. We're reminded a lot, whether you're in Romans, whether you're in Galatians, whether you're in Ephesians, I don't care what book you want to hit at, it's going to tell the state of mankind. And that's where everybody, before they become a Christian, have to realize, as they become a Christian, they realize that they are truly depraved. They truly are sinners before a holy God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians two verse one says. So, he's saying this here. Also, we, while we were children, were held in bondage. We were in bondage. We couldn't get out. We were like slaves in a in a market. We were behind, uh, uh, I guess you could say, bars. You know, in another sense. I mean, we we were in bondage, right? Okay, we get, we have that, right? We know that. So we go into application here. And it talks about people and all people who are alienated and separated from God. Jews were under the bondage of the law. What about the Gentiles? The Greeks, they didn't have the law that the Jews did. Yeah, they did. They had it in their conscience. And Romans chapters 1 and 2 will explain what about those Gentiles or the people who have never heard the gospel and it explains it there. They have it written in their conscience. It bears witness there. There's a potential inheritance, a coming salvation, but all men are like children and there has to be a point whenever we're released. A bondage of the law is what it really is. We were slaves to the law. And what does the law do to us? Condemns us, kills us. That's what the law does. It does its purpose. It's a good thing. God uses that to show our need of Christ. So we too were children of a different kind. Children of wrath, children of the devil. John 8.54 speaks of the children of the devil. You remember that? Jesus talking to the religious leaders here. Ah, uh, boy. Okay. Now all of a sudden, I've have lost my place. Um. Anybody see that I uh, I wrote down something here wrong? But anyway, do you remember whenever Jesus called like the Pharisees, children of the devil? We're we're children of the devil before we know Christ. Before we enter the kingdom, we're all under guardians and and managers we're under that law either the law of god or, or the very conscience we're under that that's that keeps us you know out of the bounds of uh salvation <laughs> until it shows that we uh, we have our need there to understand that now we go back to galatians and I uh, just wanted to get you used to turning to john from galatians and a uh, nice little exercise there i know it's there somewhere Okay, elemental things. So also, while we were children, we're held in bondage to what? We were under the elemental things of the world. Now, there are a lot of different explanations for this. Stoia Kaon, I'll give another one that just might confuse it more, but uh, just trying to keep in context, I think we can get pretty close to what it is. It could mean worldly thinking of the lowest level, of, of low rank. It's the ABCs, the elemental thing. When you think of elementary school, the very basics, right? ABCs, one, two, three. Jackson Five. No. Back in the '60s. Sorry about that. Ideologies. That's pretty basic stuff there too, isn't it? The ideologies, the philosophies, uh, the the songs, all that stuff. It's the way of thinking that once governed our thinking. That was our our life. Those kind of things, that was what really encased us into what we really thought about and, and did. We thought it was so wise sometimes, so deep, some of the philosophies of the world, the teaching that we got that really was so childish, so base, so elementary. Human reasoning, human reasoning, and the religion that was not based on Christ. Uh, you were uh, Really, all those things you were attached to, I was attached to, it was childish, it was, it was elemental. It's how we used to think. It might not have been very long ago. It might have been quite a few years ago. But we were in the slavery of sin of the world. The world uh, just encased us in all the things that it was about. We're talking about the world system. The world system duped us. The devil duped us. You know, we we were brainwashed. We were indoctrinated by superstitions of the world, the philosophies, the empty reasoning, the foolish speculations. All of those things that uh, really are nothing compared to eternity. We were duped by the prince of darkness. He is the one who blinds one. Um, you know, I, I have to think of uh, one of the greatest passages dealing with Satan blinding the the mind of the unbeliever. In Second Corinthians I, I think it's in chapter four says in um, verse three, and even if our gospel is veiled as veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, he actually blinds them so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus is lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus sake for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ you see what happened we were in darkness We are blinded by the enemy. And then God comes into our hearts, turns on the switch, regenerates us, and guess what? You've seen that when you walked in a dark room, totally dark room, and boom, one flip of the switch, and the light is on, and that's what He did. The light shined out of darkness, and so we got the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that light coming on? But those elemental things is what we were held in bondage to, and it could mean the law that they were following the law in every detail. You know, they thought they were. Our minds were blinded and hardened. They were filled with base elemental things. You guys know what I'm talking about. You were there. That's where you were at. That was that was your life. You know what? We didn't even know that we didn't know. That's how blinded we were. That's you know, that's how much in bondage you were. Look at Colossians 2 8. It, it says it very well. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it. He says, make sure. No one takes you captive through philosophy, love of wisdom, and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, men, according to the Here we go. Elementary principles of the world. That's why I think Galatians is saying the same thing when it says elemental things. I think it's agreeing with us elementary principles here in Colossians 2. Rather than according to Christ. It's really anything. Buying anything that is false. It's not true. It's not based upon Christ. Now, there are things... Are we talking about when we were in school, in elementary school, and we should get rid of all the true science and the true math when one plus one was two? <laughs> and, uh, you know, all, all of the other, the reading and the writing, all those things, uh, those things that were true. No, we don't get rid of that. I mean, that's, that's basic. It's, it's very helpful in being able to read the Word of God. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. But um, you see that it's talking about things of the world that are in disagreement with God's Word. That's the idea there. So, what we've done now, we have put up a black velvet backdrop for our next section. Verse 4. Can you picture this? All of a sudden the screen comes down and it's a beautiful blackness. (laughs) It shows you where we were at. We were children, children of the devil, children like really slaves. There's a depravity of man. Now the light comes on and we start in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Here's where the time came. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Word of God is a speaking. God sets in motion the plan, which He already had in mind. He activates it and sets it in motion. That's the idea when He says the fullness of the time came. It's the time the sovereign God had already set for the Son to come into the world. And God's timetable is perfect. It wasn't that He said, sometime I'm going to send the Son. Son, you know that, right? Okay. Uh, okay, but I'm not sure when. I'll just have to let it play out and see how the humans react. And then whenever I think it's right, when it looks like it could be okay, then I'll, I'll send Him down. Now, that's a theology that some people would actually believe. But no, we have to believe that he already had this planned out for the foundation of the world. Because scripturally, that's what it says. Um, God's timetable is absolutely perfect. When you were born in time, that was the exact time that God had in mind. When you became saved, that was God's absolute perfect timing. And when he takes you to be with him, it will be in his perfect timing. Wow! I'm glad he's got it under control because it sure doesn't seem like things are under control, but he is. God's sovereign time. God set a fixed time. God is always on time. God is never late. And in the fullness of time, it means God is never off schedule. We can get off schedule. You know what? I love the thought of God never changing. You know how much that means to you. In an ever-changing world, my life is changing constantly. Matter of fact, even when I don't want to, change, I don't like to change. I really don't. If I could just make things stop, it would be a lot better. But things must change, and my body's changing, and it must change. And I mean. There are uh, cells, I understand, that are dying right now, you know. They're dying. But there are other cells that are, you know, replacing that or something. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe not. (laughs) But
1: uh, I'm
0: telling you, and and then things at at work, just whenever I finally feel comfortable, uh, you know, in that system that they have, and the next thing is like... They're changing it. I just got it down. I felt like an idiot because I couldn't get it. I couldn't. I, there was always things I couldn't understand. And now I have it for the first time and the next day it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to have to go to a new system and I have to learn something over again. Things are never the same. They always change. Oh, well, if we could go back to the 50s, 60s. Well, then you guys, most of you wouldn't be here. I don't know. The time is right. Man, he he is the basis, though. Because he doesn't change, we can count on him all the time, every time. Right? He does not change. Now, John MacArthur, I thought, put a, a real good part on this about the fullness of times. And he used some issues like in the fullness of times religiously. Okay, Ezra had put together the Old Testament of the scrolls, put those together. They had the word of the Old Testament. New Testament was going to be 400 years later, but he put that all together. It was after the Babylonian captivity that synagogues came about. So they could have synagogues all over the land when they went back. But They actually—they didn't know what was going on, but actually they, they met at different places when they were in Babylon, but that got things going. I mean, this is a perfect setting for whenever the Gospel happens, when Christ comes. They had local assemblies. Paul took tremendous advantage of those. The canon of the text of the Old Testament was there. It was completed. It was in their hands. Religious leaders had all the scrolls. It was all there. It was, as a matter of fact, it was considered to be complete and done. So, religiously, things were right. God knew that. God had it ordained to be that way. That's the religious aspect. Secondly is the cultural aspect in the fullness of times. What do you mean the fullness of times? Well, culturally, there had been Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great made it a Greek world. And in a Greek world, you have a unified language, basically, called Greek and that was known throughout all the world. It was a common language. Guess what? The New Testament was written in for all of mankind, not Hebrew, but Greek. And our language, English, has a lot of Greek words in it. Of course, there are a lot of other words in our English language that, that's come together. But you know, that was able to go out to a, uh, a common, in a common language to the world. Uh, the gospel was easily accessible a brief period of time without struggling with, uh, with the language barriers. So Alexander the Great, God used to set all that up in Greek culture under the control of God, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the religious aspect. We have the cultural aspect. How about the political aspect? In the fullness of times. What does it mean? Well, politically, Rome was the empire and had taken over the world and an institute of what was called the Pax. P-A-X Romana. The peace of Rome. That's beautiful. Because that's going to allow people like Paul to go out into the Roman world where there is peace at this time. This is all under God's headship. Even though these are pagans, God uses the Romans to to bring peace. And so they, they went out and built wonderful roads For the first time in man's history, they have roads all over the known empire. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's what the Romans did. And it was great for missionaries to travel on. Even though they had some hard ways to go, there were uh, places that you could actually walk and feel pretty free about it. Uh, It was God's time. Time for the slaves under the law to be made sons of God the only one who can free them is Christ now granted there are believers for those thousands of years before Christ because they believe like Abraham does they believe God and it's accounted to them as righteousness right so those are believers but they still the, the, for sin to be taken away it's still the time of Christ at the cross is where that is then performed right so that's important that's really important um, how Jesus came I think is, is just really incredible and God designed this the eternal son would be born of a woman when the fullness of the time came God sent forth his son born of a woman doesn't really uh, bring out the aspect of the virgin birth here and I don't think that's really the intention even though we would think of that and that's ok we definitely believe in a virgin birth that's, that's key but it shows that he's coming he came into the world as a man. He's fully God, but he's fully man. He he is man like us in, in that sense. It speaks of his humanity. The Son of God, the Son of Man. He must be a man. Um let's look at Hebrews chapter one, verse three. First of all, just talks about Him and His glory first. Hebrews 1.3 And He is the radiance of His glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There it talks about the Son of God who is fully God with all the glory, but yet... He was man who came into the world. Um, Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, the epitome of humility, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, like us, but yet God. John 1 verse 14. So we're talking about God coming to earth here. Just an incredible thought. And you say this to most people and it's like a fairy tale. It's like science fiction. The God, the creator of the universe out there this whatever, you know, came to earth here like a man. That does sound like sci-fi, doesn't it? But this is sci-truth. <laughs> And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, Christ, became flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched His tent. Really, literally, that's the the idea of dwelling, right? And we saw His glory. We saw it. We saw the Mount of Transfiguration peeled back His flesh and the glory of God came through Jesus Christ as Peter, James, and John saw that along with Moses and Elijah. The glory was there in the transfiguration. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Christ is the one that shows us God. Doesn't He? That's immense. That's powerful. Born of a woman. Coming into this this sin-infested world and lived a perfectly righteous life. Not one little taint of sin was on him at all. His sacrifice was of infinite value. That's why this man had to be God. Because God is infinite. So the sacrifice is what? Infinite. The value is infinite. So it had to be a God in order to give that. In order to have the power to deliver us out of the realm of darkness, it had to be God. The power to be able to smash Satan into two, into three, into four, just totally destroyed Him there right at the cross. To dominate death. It had to be God. It had to be God. He had to be a man because it was man who sinned it was us. So that's why He has to become man. It was man who had to pay. So the man, God, pays the penalty. He rendered his life to God as a sacrifice. So that's why he, it was a man who satisfied the penalty. That's the only way that God the Father would accept the righteousness of us is that somebody had to pay our sins and it had to be His Son because He's the only perfect one. But He had to be man to have the privilege of substitution, but He had to be God. We were all lawbreakers. So it says here, When the fullness of the time came, verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Just like us. He was born under the law. Yeah even though he's the one who is really the lawgiver in one sense, in another sense he's under the law, and because he had to live the perfect life, and the law is what proves it. He lived what's called active obedience. Theologians call that work in his life, we're saved by his life. He said, wait a minute, I thought it was by His death. Yeah, absolutely. But also by His life. He, in order to die, He had to live first. And in order to live, He had to live the perfect life. Because if He stumbles once, then He's not qualified to be our Savior. So we're also saved by His life or what is called perfect obedience or act of obedience. When He's on the cross, it's called passive obedience. He let them kill Him. That was passive. Although, he obeyed to the point of death, Philippians says. So, active obedience, passive obedience. You got it? Reformers use that a lot. Theologians use it. Thought you guys might like to try that out if you like. And anyway, we're called, we call it obedience, don't we? Perfect. For us to be justified by faith, that had to happen. That's why we believe in, the uh, of course, the triune God. That's why we believe in the Incarnation. That is a basic elemental truth that is very deep. That is a basic truth that all Christians have to believe. You show me somebody who does not believe in the Incarnation, I'll show you a false believer. They're not real. Uh, That is a must, that you believe that He came here to earth through the virgin birth and was a man while being God. Those, you know, the authority of the Word of God, the, the very Word of God. Everything here is the absolute truth of God. You have to believe that, right? Those, you have to believe in hell. Those are basic fundamentals that is getting so far away from just the average church today. Uh, they don't. They want to believe in a God that they concoct. That would not be a God that would judge. That would not be a God who really even wants to talk about sin or even acknowledge that there is sin. There's no wrath. Um, There's no hell. There's no penalty. Matter of fact, if you don't want to believe in the Savior, then you can believe in Muhammad. You can believe in Buddha. It doesn't matter. I'm a Christian, but you can believe what you want to believe. That is the plurality that has invaded our world today, has invaded this country, and is in the churches in churches that would have been considered biblical 20, 30 years ago. And they have grasped this because they are politically correct now. And so, therefore, homosexuality is okay. It's accepted. Matter of fact, it's not only accepted, you have pastors who are homosexuals. Unbelievable, right? Well, he followed the law. And by His death becomes the removal of our sin and our guilt. He took on my sin. I am saved by His sinless life and His substitutionary sacrificial death. I am saved. saved. Our God saves. Our God saves. I get sin forgiven because of His death. We were under the law. We broke it. That's why there had to be death. So when, whenever He came to earth, it was just like He found us captives under tutors, under governors. There we were. We were shut up in prison. That's where we were at until the sentence condemns us Do we recognize where that's at. You know what? Christ did no sin. Perfectly innocent, but you know what? The law was no less cruel against this innocent, righteous one as he was taken to be a blasphemer and he took on the guilt of us. Right? Gospel. It made him guilty, in one sense, before God. The even though he did not sin, don't get me wrong, but it's like he's taking on that guilt, he's guilty before God because of the sins of the world were on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment when he took on the awful, dreadful, wicked, black, dark sins of just me alone would be incredible. But each one of you And each one in the whole body of Christ and all their sins are put on Him down through the history of the church up till now. And those sins were died for. They were paid for. He took on that guilt. And God, being the just judge that He is, had to condemn Him to death. That was the plan. And He suffered the most cruel tyranny that could possibly have been done. And you know what? Because it was done there, it cannot kill us anymore. Our bodies will die, but we who have trusted Christ will never die. You're born once, you die twice. You're born twice, born again, you die once. You've already died. Spiritually, that Old oh, man is dead. You are a new creature. Your eternal life has already started. It's just going to get better and better and better. Things in this worse, uh, in this world is going to get worse and worse and worse.
1: <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, we happen to be incarcerated in these bodies. You know what? Why did he do that? Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he, he might redeem those who were under the law. That's us. So that he could redeem us. So that he could ex That's that word again. You guys getting that by now, aren't you? Paul has used this before here in this uh, letter. Ex exit. Out of. Agora. Marketplace. Ex Out of the marketplace or to be bought out of the evil world system. You have been bought and paid for. You were taken out of that wicked system. Even though you live here, we're in the world, but not of it. He suffered all the tyranny of the law. The law was set upon Christ and so horribly assailed Him that He felt such anguish. But you have been set free. You were bought. You were paid for, folks. The stamp, boom, hits it paid. P-A-I-D. Right across the page. There's nothing you have to pay for. It. Just go right on in. <laughs> All right. Ever, has anybody ever bought you a ticket to a concert or to some special event and they said, here, it's yours. Well, can I pay you? No, no. It's free. Just take it. Oh, wow. I want to do something. Can I come over and clean your house? <laughs> no, no. I don't want you to do anything. I just want you just to receive it. Walk on in. It's great, isn't it? From slavery to sonship, we now have access to the Father. We had that the moment we trusted in Christ. Isn't that great? We were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. It says at the end of verse 5, from slavery to sonship, we have access. Look in Romans 8, verse 15. We did this last week. We're going to do it again because I love this part. This is just mind-blowing, for you have not received a spirit of slavery. See? That's gone. We're bought out of that. Leading to fear again. That means we were that. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. That sounds familiar. Just like our Galatians passage. Which we cry out, Abba, Father, this is where we're leading up to. This is just like Galatians. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, what are we? Heirs. Remember the sons of being the infants? But heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that when we all will see glorified, there's the what is it the cross before the crown you suffer before you have victory that's part of the plan that God has I could skip the suffering part but I'm glad it's not my will it's God's will and he uses all of that that means going through this world in whatever way it is and look at Ephesians well I think we did Ephesians 1 5 look in Ephesians uh, 3 14 and 15 we have to move on you know, originally, I had planned out to do seven verses. Hmm. three, fourteen, and fifteen. for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Are you getting pumped up a little bit here? the riches of his glory to be strengthened with dunamis dynamite through his spirit in the inner man folks this this is this is grand good news i know you know it but don't take it for granted we're sons we're heirs we get the riches of his glory be strengthened with His power even right now this is a prayer here you know that uh, we need to realize that was prayed for us through His Spirit it's in the inner man right now we have His very power it's an incredible thing look what adoption does and then we go back to Galatians 4 6 you know what I'm just going to be able to go seven verses today. I really did. I I had it from seven on after that. But here we go. Because you are sons, God has sent forth, sent Him away, sent Him to us, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Holy Spirit came to this inner man crying, Abba, Father this is our Sonship being confirmed here the Father sent two of the Trinity to us the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit in Christ Himself we are in Christ, Christ is in us the Holy Spirit dwells in us. At the moment of the new birth, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He regenerated you. Oh, the power of God. We couldn't regenerate ourselves, could we? It took God to come in, the Holy Spirit. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, that He is the... What? That He is the earnest. He's the down payment for something... That's going to come later. We have the inner, indwelling Holy Spirit in us. The very power of God. And our very thinking, our very speech, our very judgment, our confession declares that the Holy Spirit is in us. It's not something that's just experiential, although it is experiential, but it's because of the Word of God. But we know We know because we know that we know without a doubt, without a doubt, we know for sure if we're believers that the Holy Spirit is in us forever. He dwells in us. I think that's just unbelievable that He would allow us to to be guaranteed like that, that there's much more to come. God sent the Spirit into your hearts and you know that. Assurance is an inside job. It's not you that assures yourself It is God doing it. It's the very Holy Spirit who lives in us. There's outward evidence such as the fruit of the Spirit. And when we get to Galatians chapter 5, I think we're going to be able to um, spend some time in an area that is very helpful to us. The fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits of the Spirit, but the unification of the very Spirit of God who resides in us that shows outwardly how we're going to live this life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all from the Holy Spirit. Him residing in us to be able to practice those things. The subjective experience that goes with it is that the Spirit enters into you, testifies to you that it is true, and Paul put it this way, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are sons of God. Well, how? How? by giving us that cry. Abba! Father! What did Jesus say in the garden of Gethsemane the night before His death? Father. He used the Aramaic word. Abba. A term of endearment. Abba. Daddy. Or Papa. That is an intimate relationship with us. We know He's our Father. We know He's not a master beating us down and drilling us. But He's our Father. Yes, He disciplines us, Hebrews 12 says. That's to train us. And yes, sometimes it can be hurtful and painful. Because the Father knows best. This Father knows best. (laughs) The Father God. Term endearment that a child would use for his daddy. You can cry out to God. Have you ever done it? Well, if you're a Christian, I'm sure you've done it many times. Maybe you've been in anguish or times that you're just not sure about things or whatever. You just needed some encouragement. It's a sense of intimacy with the Father. He gives us that cry. Cry out to God. It's proof positive. You're a son. And we read that in our Hebrews 8. Do you see the difference between being a son of God and being a slave of the law? A person under the law, a Jew in the Old Testament? The only thing that he has was what? An external authority. He had no internal power. You see, all he had was external rules to go by. That couldn't change his heart. But if one is a believer, he does have the power of God's Spirit. He is fully revealed in the body of Christ today. But we can't change the inside. It's only God that can do that. The demands were to do this, to do that. The law did its purpose. killed us. Now the Holy Spirit says, I've written the law in your heart. Now you desire to do whatever it is, Lord, that you want me to do. I want to do. I want to be obedient. I want to be like Christ. Help me be actively obedient. And I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to have you change here. I'm going to have you change there. He's been doing it. He's going to continue to do it. He wants us to yield. And we're going to stop there in verse 7. Sorry I didn't get finished, but that's okay. We'll skip it and go into the next section after that. We'll go into chapter 5 next week. No. <laughs> we'll, we'll just pick that right up. But um, I think it's a, a wonderful thing of the position where
1: God has put us, all by his grace for his glory. Let's pray.